Hello and welcome to Outside Inside Radio. I'm Kathy Foley-Meyer, your host, and I'm really excited today to be here with actor-writer Patrick Keating. Welcome, Patrick. Hey, Kathy. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. So I saw a trailer for your one-man show, which is called Inside Out, a yes. prison memoir. I'm, I'm always struck by how many things related to incarceration start with either outside, inside, or inside out. It's true, isn't it? <laughs> it's like a brand. Yeah. Basically. Um, actually, I'd like to start with your artistic journey Generally. Mm, okay. Well, I wasn't a very artistic youngster, and um, my family. Where did you grow up? Grew up in Montreal. Ah, okay. Uh, in Quebec. Yeah, and I grew up there. We went back and forth between Montreal and Toronto a few different times because of my father's work. He worked for a shipping company. And so I grew up in Montreal, and I guess my family wasn't very uh, into the arts at all. They are, you know, just working class folks. And I got into crime and drugs very young, ended up in the penitentiary a few times, and um, I guess did a total of about 10 years altogether. And it was there that I found art and found education. I had dropped out of school, or actually I was expelled from school in grade nine. It was a Catholic high school with a very strict dress code. It was run by the Sisters of the Sacred Heart and the Jesuit Brothers. And yeah, I guess it was the 70s then. And so we put on a bit of a strike to try and get the clothing changed. And I got expelled for that. Yeah, the church is not going to move on that. No, no, they wouldn't move on a lot of things, right? And they still don't. <laughs> yeah. And when I was inside, there were, at that time, university courses given. And when I was in Quebec, there was a political changing of the guard, sort of speak. There was a referendum that happened that Quebec, one of the 10 provinces of Canada, wanted to separate from the rest of Canada. I remember that. Mainly French-speaking. Exactly. And yeah. so they believed, and to a certain degree, rightly so, that their culture is quite different than the rest of Canada. And so there was a referendum put forward, and that was the first time that actually federal prisoners were allowed to vote. Hmm. And they brought the ballot boxes in, and it was a federal penitentiary. And so they didn't really know what would happen if Quebec separated because it would no longer be part of the Federation. So when I came back to the range one day, there was a bulletin put up saying basically any Anglophone wanting a transfer out of the province, just say where you want to go and when. And I was writing to someone who lived out in British Columbia, and she suggested that I come out, come out here to Vancouver. And so I thought about it. And at that time, it was going on to my third sentence. And it was the revolving door syndrome. And I thought, maybe if I get away from Montreal, because really, I'm just going to be sweeping up the ashes of burnt bridges when I get out. So I might as well try another place. And so I came out here. And when I got transferred out here, there were university courses from the University of Simon Fraser University and also University of uh, Victoria. And what they would do is they would try and find professors that were willing to come in. When they had about four or five, they would put out to the guys, you know, the list and right. we would vote. 
on what we wanted, economics or anthropology, or it was, and it was really an eclectic mix, right, which is wonderful. It started opening up my mind to uh, different possibilities and a different world, you know. And it just so happened that one of the courses, one of them that was a choice was theater. And I didn't know theater. I'd never been to a play, anything like that. But I did like writing. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, oh, maybe it would help with that, right? Probably going to be reading some books about plays or how to write a play, stuff like that. And a lot of the guys wanted it. I didn't know, but they did that every year. They would do a, a theater course every year. That was the what we were going to be taking, theater. And the gentleman that came in, Richard Payne, he told us that he had, had adapted this Victorian play by a French writer, Alfred Jarry, called Ubu Roi. And he had taken it into like a children's, ad, adapted to a, a children's play and a clown play. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. Did it work? <laughs> well, actually it did. It just went, it was, yeah, quite amazing. Oh. Um, because it was all about oppression. And, right, but with and, clowns. <laughs> and with clowns, yes. <laughs> and the, clowns, as you know, could be very um, political. Scary. Yeah. Exactly. And so when he first brought this up, I thought, there's no way. There is no way I am doing this. You know. Right. And he came in one day and was talking to us, and then he went out and he came back in like full clown regalia. Oh, and started doing his clown turn and stop in front of people. And then he stopped in front of me and he was trying to make me laugh. And I thought, no, no, there's no way you're going to make me laugh. Forget it. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't that day because I right. was so stubborn, but eventually he made me smile. Mm. And there was a few of the guys that were around had quite a good reputation in the general population. And mm -hmm. so I started watching them and thought, well, if they can act like fools and get away with it, I can certainly act like a fool. <laughs> so uh, away I went and I started, I started enjoying it. And, yeah. and it turned out that, and it would, it took place over a, a two month period on weekends. Right. right? And people would, you know, enter their, send in their information to get security clearance and all that. Some of the people that came up were a theater company from Vancouver. And they came and saw the show and they were quite impressed. And they came up to us and said, would you mind if we reciprocated? And we brought up the show that is in production for our company oh. to, you know, to play it for you guys. Right. And that's the first play I had ever seen. And it was a wow. play by Samuel Beckett called Happy Days. And it's a one-woman show. The first act is the woman is up to her waist in sand. Mm -hmm. And her day starts and ends with the ring of a bell. And in the second act, she's up to her neck in sand. Mm -hmm. And her day begins and ends with the ring of a bell. And as I was watching this, I thought, this is my life. Mm -hmm. I am so stuck here. And it just so happened that a couple of the people in the theater company said, if any of you guys want to push in the right direction when you get out, give us a call. And so I guess it was about three months after I got out, I phoned and said, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and so they brought me in and they were wonderful. They allowed me to 
come into the rehearsal hall and just hang around. And mm -hmm. I just became a sponge. Right. I just started soaking up as much as I could. They had boxes and boxes of plays and I would read them. I would help them uh, paint, you know, right. paint sets or carry anything, anything they wanted, I would be there to right. do. Right. And eventually I went back to Simon Fraser University mm -hmm. and uh, got my Bachelor of Arts in uh, the theater department. And I started working quite soon after that. Wow. And that was about 20 or so years ago. <laughs> and I've been doing that ever since. That is an amazing story. You know, when you were talking, I was thinking, I mean, that's a real journey of self discovery. So what do you think are the most important things you've learned about yourself through that journey and through your practice? Um, that I do have a really good sense of curiosity. And I guess it was my search for community. Mm -hmm. And I found that in theater, that everybody is focused on bringing those words onto the stage and to help every other person involved in it no matter what your position is being a you know a young guy i was always looking for community that was my search my family there's six of us it was irish uh, catholic right. and it was sort of two separate families my two eldest brothers and sister two sisters quite a bit older than me my mm -hmm. eldest brother was 16 when i was oh. born so they were sort of out of the house yeah. They weren't really around when I was growing up. Right? And so I was always looking for something. I wasn't that good with athletics. So it wasn't a team thing that I, you know, hooked into. And it just so happened that I got in with, you know, like-minded people that were, that were just hanging out and watched each other's backs. And we started on that path. Yeah, it's of, like a, it's a uh, committing crime. Yeah, yeah, it is very much <laughs> it's so. Like a, very much like a family. I, th yeah. I think, I think your experience is really common. I've heard that a lot. A lot. You know, I think it's a human thing to be looking for community. So mm -hmm. it's it's a norm. So how long did it take before you decided you wanted to do your one man show? Oh, it was a long time. When I started working in theater and TV and that, I I was really reluctant to let people know about my past. Uh, there was, I guess, like a lot of people, there was a shame and guilt involved. And it was also, I thought that if people knew I'd be ostracized from this new community that I wanted to be a part of. I mean, people that I knew very, very well, you know, I would let them know about my past. But for the most part, the theater community didn't know. And it took really until... I got a notice from the actors union about a memorial service that was happening on the other end of the country for the gentleman, Richard Payne, that had come in and taught us theater. And I hadn't been in touch with him at all, but I wrote an email because they had mentioned where the service was going to, the memorial service was going to be. And so I wrote an email saying, you know, you don't know me from Adam, you people, but this is what this man Richard did for me. He gave me this great gift and he showed me a path that I could follow. And luckily I accepted the challenge and went on that path. Yeah. 
That is the greatest gift in a way that sort of like that shows the way you were talking before about your curiosity. And I think if you can maintain curiosity about the world throughout your life, I think people that do that are much happier and more fulfilled. Yeah. It makes you want to learn things, right. you know, I find, right? right? If I'm, if I see like, uh, if I hear, oh, that, that, that sound, what's that sound? Oh, the, right. oh, it's the song of a bird. Well, what bird is that? What kind of bird is that? I, I go on a path of trying to find out, oh, it's, a, you know, what kind of bird it is or whatever. Yeah. I just go on these different journeys. I think sometimes my favorite phrase is, what is that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I remember my nephew, my eldest nephew, when he was, you know, just maybe two years old, just starting to speak, they'd carry him around and he would just point at stuff and go, Ooh, what's that? <laughs> and you would have to, and you would, you know, well, what that is, is a car. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was great. Childlike curiosity. There is nothing better than that. Yeah. So at some point you were doing, you know, other people's plays. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular play that you love that inspires you? There was a lot of uh, Sam Shepard and um, yeah. uh, some mammoth plays, but those are, you know, it's a group of men just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of that stuff happening. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and you can get away with stuff that like we can't even do here, like swear words. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. They're good for venting. A lot of breath yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I. Mammoth plays are good for that too. Yes, yeah. they are. Yeah, a lot of rants, a lot of venting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and a lot of male yeah. bonding. So it makes sense. So when you were ready to use your own life, mm -hmm. you know, as creative inspiration, how long did that take to develop? Well, the play itself, I mean, it started when actually I uh, was doing a mammoth play. And uh, Which this, one? Uh, it was uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Oh, you were going to say that. Yeah. yeah. And um, I was just called out of the blue because I had worked um, before with one of the young men that had started this company. And, you know, I was in my 50s and they were in their late 20s early 30s and we would go out after and um at that time I was I was sort of being a bit more comfortable with talking about my past mm -hmm. and you know they would say stuff and I go oh yeah well <laughs> and I would go on a, a story and they go you gotta write this stuff down and I go well yeah that well that's my life that's boring I've lived through it Right. So I never really thought that it would be interesting to anybody. Yeah. You know, and they said, okay, look, why don't we have a fundraiser? It'll help us. You know, we'll raise some money and it'll give you a deadline. There so you, you write down some, and the gentleman that was a, um, the director, he said that he would help me with uh, dramaturgically. And he was a professor out at UBC. And so we were able to go out there and work quite a bit. And we just put down a lot of stories. You know, he would ask me questions and we had a tape recorder. And I would just go off on these different stories or about, and he'd say, well, you know, I was always interested if people are inside and why do you go back? I mean, it, so I'd go off on trying to explain all of that. And 
So I put it down to about maybe, I don't know, 20 or 30 pages, nothing huge. Mm-hmm. And we had the same theater that we were using. And I guess the maximum capacity was about 50. And we crammed about 70 people into the place. And the feedback that I got was quite inspiring. Mm-hmm. A lot of people that I respected came up to me and said, you know, this, this is wonderful writing and you got to continue on with this. So that gave me the, I guess, courage to continue on. It took probably about, I would say about a year and a half Mm -hmm. to two years to actually get it down to where we had a production ready. Right. To workshop it to the point where it was ready to be seen. Exactly. Yes. And I know that you performed it for festivals. Are you also bringing it back inside? I am. The first time I did, uh, there was a festival called the UNO Festival in uh, Victoria on Vancouver Island. And it's a festival for one-person shows. So I was doing that and somebody from the community got a hold of me and said, you know, there's a penitentiary just near here called William Head. And they have a theater group in there. And she was wondering if I would be interested in going in and performing for the the incarcerated men there. And I said, yeah, of course, you know, well, I didn't even think about it really. And then we pulled into the parking lot and I saw the razor wire and the gates Mm -hmm. and I went, I don't know about this. (laughs) A little PTSD. Yeah, it was a little, yeah, disconcerting, but I went in and, um, did the show, mm-hmm. um, didn't do it with any lights or anything. There was right. uh, a couple of, we were able to put some of the sound on a DVD and we brought in a, uh, cause we couldn't really bring anything in with us. And they right. had like a boom box that we were able to do some of the sound effects. And I remember it was really hard to read how, what the audience was thinking, mm-hmm. you know, of, of course the, Everybody was extremely respectful. You know, I could hear a couple of, a little bit of laughter, recognition of laughter, you know. (laughs) And there was this gentleman that was sitting in the front row and really large man. He had his arms crossed and he was just staring at me. And I was thinking, this guy is not enjoying this. Right? (laughs) He's not happy to be here. And he was the first one up after and came to me and he stuck his hand out and my hand felt like a little baby's hand in his hand. He was just this large man. And he looked at me and he started tapping his bottom lip and his eyes started welling up. And he Mm. said, I could never find the words. I always tried to tell my family what it's like in here. And I could never really find the words, but you found them. You have to keep doing this. Yeah. And that really gave me, uh, I guess, justification to carry on with it because before that i was always wondering like if i do bring it inside are they going to enjoy it right are people going to enjoy it are they going to look at it and go ah that's nothing i got a story (laughs) and actually that's what i'm trying to do now is to bring it in to try and entice people to tell their own truths to tell their own story right Yeah, you were having a a real exchange where you're allowing certain people to be seen and to see themselves and to acknowledge being seen because the fact that you're, you know, telling this tale inside means that you see them and you understand. 
That's huge. So two things I wanted to ask. One mm-hmm. was, what's the significance of the file box? <laughs> That's really interesting because when I do do it inside, mm-hmm. one of the first questions or comments are, mm-hmm. as soon as you walked in with that, we knew exactly what they were. Right. <laughs> Because everybody has their files and everybody, Uh, everything is written in there. Right. Even even if you don't meet people, anybody that is in charge of you, the psychologist, they all write down what they think. They put it in their file. Yeah. And especially people that are doing an extremely long sense. Yeah. It's hard for them to undo, even though they go through a lot of programs and they mm-hmm. do everything they can to better themselves. Or and You are subject to the contents of the box. Exactly. And that's your life, right? Yeah. I wrote away for, uh, uh, through the Information uh, Act. Freedom of Information Act. And I got all of my files and the ones that I really wanted to look at. I wasn't allowed to see. Of course. And the one that was like security and preventive security and all that, there was 64 pages in the file. And I was allowed the first page, which said there are 64 pages in this file. And one other page that was three quarters of it was redacted. Right. At one point, I I thought, oh, well, I'll write the play using the files. Mm Mm-hmm. But there was not really nothing there. And that's when you realize it's not there. <laughs> exactly. It's not there. It's in here. That yeah. is a, it's an interpretation of you. Okay. Yeah. But it is not essentially you. Yeah. So the second thing I wanted to ask is, would you be willing to read something from the show for our audience? Because this podcast is actually also broadcast inside. Yeah, that would be great. Sure. I was always getting stopped by the police for stupid stuff. The coppers knew me. They knew my brother. They knew my cousin. But like I said, it was for piddly stuff. So either they smacked me in the head and told me go home, or they'd call my brother. And he'd smack me in the head and tell me get home. But this time, it was different. I was about 16 or so. I was crashing at my buddy Mike's place for the night, sleeping on the mattress on the floor. I wake up to cops standing over me, guns drawn. We're charged with possessing stolen property. Now, I didn't know. It turns out one of his rooms was filled with stuff. We get taken down to this old, dingy Victorian dungeon of a place called St. Valier. Right away, my senses are overloaded. Rough cement walls, institutional green. The air, the atmosphere adds 10 pounds to each shoulder and makes every single hair on my neck stand straight up. Brought in at night. We get pushed into the TV room. About 30 kids, 14 to 18 years old, mostly French. None we know. They all seem tough. Solid. Everyone sizes everyone up being checked out and checking out it's a dance Two put their forearms together and play chicken with a lit cigarette at 10 we're put into the dorm room about 40 double bunks now i find the one with my name on it it smells of mothballs stale sweat and athletes feet the springs they sag and creak with every shift of the body The sounds of sleep slowly grow softer till all defenses are peeled away. 
Fear turns to moans and whimpers as the toughs revert to what they really are, children. The sound of the keys, they snap me awake. The old guard does his rounds, and I listen as he stops by his favorites and shushes them, warning them not to move. And like sheep that fall over from the stare of the wolf, les jeunes give over to the adult. Now, I feel that I should yell, but I'm just relieved it was them and not me. Next thing I know, it's morning. And we're herded down old dank hallways to the showers. On the way, we pass the younger kids in their jockey shorts standing in front of the arched doorways to their cells. Some look no more than five or six. Some crying, some sniveling, all with Goosebumps and sleep in their eyes. After breakfast, we're brought down to the basement walkway. Outfitted with blue blazers with a red crest. Mine, it's too big, and Mike's is too small. We're escorted through 150 yards of old dark passageway, under the streets of Montreal and up into the juvenile court building. We're seated in front of a room. Mike's father takes one look at us and just bursts out laughing. (laughs) What's with the suits? Mike wasn't laughing. He was scared. He was about to turn 18 in a couple of weeks and was worried he'd be sent to adult prison. I was called in first. Now, I I didn't know who was who, but told the room, look, everything's mine. Mike's got nothing to do with nothing. I was 16. I didn't have to worry about adult prison. So Mike went home. I was sent to Berthelet, a more modern juvenile prison with bright lights, razor wire, and steel bar cells with doors that slam shut behind you. Thank you. That was really intense. If that were a book, I'd want to be reading the next uh, chapter there. Oh, thank you. uh, Thank you so, so much. Patrick, for sharing your journey with us. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Outside Inside Radio is brought to you by Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. Our collaborative teaching teams include faculty, students, staff, and peer facilitators inside the prisons. Our classes include art making, art history, reflection, and the cultivation of a safe space. We are based at San Diego State University and partner with universities including UC Irvine and Cal State University campuses in Humboldt, Fullerton, and San Bernardino. Prison Arts Collective is a project of Arts in Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media as an extension of our distance learning project created in response to COVID-19. Each of our guests is involved in bringing the arts to people experiencing incarceration. Many are returned residents who continue to pursue a creative life or artists working directly with incarcerated populations to expand access to the arts. A special thanks to MIGFUS20 and RTB45 for the music used in the podcast. 
Take good care and see you next time on Outside Inside. Mm-hmm.